Hello, my name is Caleb Paul Freeman. This is the first video of my uh, series of podcasts that I'm going to be doing on different films that have had an impact in the world. Today's film, we're going to be talking about Triumph of the Will, um, a propaganda film produced in 1934 that was meant to follow the happenings and the speeches of the Nuremberg rally, which happened in 1934. Um, today with me I have Professor David Piggott, Professor of History, Political Science, and Geography. Um, let him introduce himself. Hi, uh, I'm Dave Piggott. I come from the History Department, uh, and my specialty really is early modern Europe, so a little bit before this time, but certainly uh, something that's reminiscent throughout time is the concept of propaganda and uh, mass hysteria and power politics. Wonderful. So uh, we'll jump right in. So I don't know when the last time you watched it until reviewing it this most recent time. What, were you, what is the initial reaction that you have to the film? What, does it, what kind of feelings does it engender in, in you? Uh, it engenders in me <laughs> looking at it uh, sort of analytically and through the lens of 75, 80 years of history and the outcomes of such propaganda and the influences of such propaganda, it engenders in me a bit of disgust and contempt and revulsion, and it almost makes me sick to my stomach. I've actually done uh, a documentary film, uh, and I know how easily it is easy it is to manipulate the viewer. Um, making sort of a happy ending to a potentially disastrous, you know, storyline. You a uh, few editorial uh, editorial flourishes, and you can come up with basically any story that you want and manipulate the audience uh, to such a degree. Uh, National Geographic does it almost mm -hmm. every time. You look yeah. on the Discovery Channel, and you see, uh, you know, uh, you see a, a, an outtake of a cheetah. You know, in the in the bush, mm. looking very seriously at some prey, and then you cut to a you know a wandering impala, and the two are actually maybe three weeks apart mm -hmm. in in actual <laughs> uh, uh, reality. But the viewer doesn't know that, so you think that cheetah is looking at the impala when that cheetah uh -huh. is actually probably looking at a Land Rover coming through the road. <laughs> so that's you know these techniques are 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 easy and they're kind of parlor tricks mm -hmm. to to lull the viewer into whatever attitude or or uh, result the producer director writer in this case Adolf Hitler mm -hmm. and his uh, propaganda machine want the viewer to, to believe yeah I <clears throat> I actually had never heard of this film until I was started I started researching films that I wanted to use for the podcast and things that I thought would have an impact and I actually was originally going to be um, doing the film on Birth of a Nation, mm -hmm. uh, KKK, but then I stumbled upon this film and I it, it stood out to me a little more because I felt that, not that the impact was larger, but I felt that it was able to, especially after watching it, just the captive, how it captivates people and the way, when you watch the film, these people look overjoyed. And I was reading a review and it talks at the beginning about, if you've seen, the, if you remember the beginning, starts on the plane and then we, we, you know, he comes down, and we have Hitler, and he appears as this kind of godlike figure. And um, I wonder, I often wonder, because as I watch the film, I, I, I just, I, have, I don't know if it's because I have 
learned about the history since then or I'm not there at that time. But watching the film, I, I just couldn't help. It just wasn't penetrating at all. So How, why do you think people are so well, easily... First off, you come from a very different uh, context than the people attending the Nuremberg rallies. Mm-hmm. You have had the great uh, luxury and uh, benefit of having a liberal arts education. You have learned how to think critically and how to think for yourself and to base your opinions and your feelings, hopefully, on evidence, Mm -hmm. whereas the vast majority of those people attending those rallies were semi-literate, maybe literate, but but working class, coming out of a very, very difficult time, looking for a savior. Um, They were desperate, and they needed someone to give them hope. And Hitler tapped into that uh, that collective sense of fear uh, so masterfully. I mean, you have to give him credit. I know it's not a very popular thing to say, but mm-hmm. in a purely Machiavellian sense, he was mm-hmm. a a master manipulator, uh, sociopathic mm-hmm. to to you know the the nth degree. But at the same time, uh, he was able to give these these uh, Germans who were reeling after a, a very harsh settlement of uh, World War One, a little bit of hope, and was, uh, was there to kind of rally the troops, no pun intended. <laughs> um, there's a, I, like I was saying earlier, I, did a, I read a little bit of his book, Mein Kampf, in preparation for this podcast and this, this paper and whatnot, and um, it really is interesting to read his words and I, I remember I checked out the book, and the girl at the at the uh, at the library seemed a little perturbed that I would want to sure. read that book. But I think it is fascinating to look into his mind and understand his thought process around that time. He actually dedicates two chapters towards the end of the book to propaganda. And um, the, this quote, uh, I'll just read it directly. He says, "Propaganda must not investigate the truth objectively, and insofar as it is favorable to the other side, present it to the theoretical rules of justice." yet it must only present the, that aspect of the truth which is favorable to its own side. Effective propaganda must be conf, uh, confided to a few bare essentials, and those must be expressed as far as possible in stereotyped formulas. These slogans should be persistently repeated until, the, ev- until every last individual has come to grasp the idea. Yeah. yeah. One, of the, uh, one of the mantras of Joseph Goebbels, his propaganda mm-hmm. minister, was uh, to tell a lie, make it big, and repeat, repeat, repeat. So that the, the re- there's really, you, you control the narrative in uh, shaping the opinions and minds of the masses. Mm. And there's a, a palpable, in, in Triumph of the Will, there's a palpable sense of groupthink. Mm-hmm. And that's a word that wasn't around in 1934. It comes along with, uh, with 1984, mm. okay, with uh, George Orwell's uh, master work on propaganda and the dangers of uh, groupthink. So there's a, there's a real psychology, group psychology, where people kind of rally each other to a, uh, up to a f- almost a frothing crescendo. Hmm. And I, I've been actually reading a little bit about this, and it's quite coincidental that you asked me to participate in this, this subject when I was actually drafting a, 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 an email to my fellow faculty members about the incredible divisiveness we have in our current political climate, and not to sound too sort of presentist in all of this, and we'll eventually get to this, but mm-hmm. this is Aldous Huxley, also one of these great uh, authors of a, an imminent dystopia, 
these futuristic uh, worlds that they create in their works of fiction, uh, Orwell and Huxley. And he says this, um, he's quoting Hitler, and this is in 1957, so with the hindsight of you know 15 or 20 years of, of this whole uh, process, he says, to be a leader means to be able to move the masses. Hmm. Hitler has a deep respect for the Catholic Church and the Jesuit order, not because of their Christian doctrine, but because of the machinery they have elaborated and controlled, their hierarchical system, their extremely clever tactics, their knowledge of human nature, and their wise use of the human weaknesses in ruling over believers. And I see that in a lot of, lot of political leaders, not just today, but throughout time. They use religion as this, as this foil um, to, uh, to, to create this messiah-like persona. Mm-hmm. And Hitler was very good at that. What do you think the, are there prerequisites to that? Is someone born with that ability to gather the masses? Yeah, sort? you're really speaking to uh, a historical debate that's mm-hmm. been around for centuries among uh, historians, and we call that the great man theory. Mm. Whether certain people are born to, you know, achieve greatness or they are products of their their world and their climate and their context. And I think, you know, both of those are true. I don't know that there would have been a a Hitler were it not for, you know, the the harsh settlement of the Versailles uh, peace treaty uh, and the desperation that that uh, engendered in, in Germany. There wouldn't have been a Napoleon, perhaps, had there not been a French Revolution that preceded his rise to power. But where there, are, where there is desperation, that's where we really run into trouble uh, because people can be easily, the minds and opinions of people can be easily manipulated. Mm. And one of the tactics that Napoleon used, that uh, Hitler used, and there's a lot of similarities between those two, the books have been written about the similarities mm. between Napoleon and Hitler, uh, is the the vilification of the other. Mm-hmm. Anybody who's different, anybody who's foreign, um, tends to be uh, uh, mistrusted and uh, put under suspicion. Mm. And, you know, Hitler and the Jews were certainly the, the kind of the, the high-water mark of that whole tactic, mm. and we see the outcomes of that. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting because we, we all know, you know, we've all been the history, we know where it ends up, final solution, extermination of the Jews and other people <clears throat> in Germany. <clears throat> but we don't... Uh, watching the film actually, because I I was expecting a whole, you know, barrage and onslaught of anti-Semitic views and opinions and mm-hmm. slurs, but there really is nothing in the film. hadn't hadn't really uh, gotten to that point yet. Okay. hadn't really gotten to that point in Triumph of the Will. He'll uh, he'll play that card a bit a bit later mm-hmm. in his uh, rise to power and his consolidation of power. Mm-hmm. Triumph of the Will Will really is uh, is merely a a piece of propaganda to control the narrative, control the mm-hmm. story, control the the subject content uh, of the greatness or the the potential greatness again, rise to greatness again, of uh, the German-speaking peoples. Mm-hmm. And the only way to get to that uh, that end goal is through the policies of Adolf Hitler. So mm-hmm. that you know you see. Uh, Who's at the end? Is it uh, not Goering? It's not Himmler. Who's the guy at the very end with the big heavy brow? Hess. Hess. Hermann Hess is uh, saying, you know, Hitler is the state. Mm -hmm. The state, Germany is Hitler. Hitler is Germany. Mm. And, uh, you know, that speaks to, you know, 
17th century French absolutism. Mm-hmm. You know, l'état c'est moi. L'état c'est moi. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am the state. Uh, it speaks to, you know, the present uh, administration saying anything that I do uh, mm-hmm. is of interest. and in, uh, Anything that benefits me benefits the state. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that we've, <laughs> I don't know that we've evolved politically yeah, much more than 1934 Nuremberg. Which is uh, terrifying. It's terrifying, terrifying but here, here's what's so, you know, when you're in the middle of it, right now we seem to be in the middle of it and we don't know the outcomes. Mm-hmm. So we look back at 1934 Nuremberg and having 75 years of, of perspective, we see the outcomes and we go, how could they fall for how that? Could, yeah. But right now we don't know the, the, the consequences of the rising xenophobism and nationalism and, hmm. and all of that stuff. And so, you know, it doesn't seem that dangerous. Mm. 75 years from now, mm-hmm. people will look back and go, how could we be so stupid? How yeah. could we have possibly fallen for that? How could these people have, you know, uh, bought into these policies? So, you know, when you're in the middle of it, it's it's the perspective. A lot of times, and to use this this old uh, adage, uh, you can't really see the forest because of all the trees. <laughs> we're in the middle of all these trees, and we don't really realize that we're we're lost in a forest. Yeah, mm. uh, they. Um, I I when I yeah once again going back to my initial. Um, opinion of the film. It just seems so outlandish, so mm-hmm. ludicrous to me. I, didn't, I had a hard time kind of understanding how people could fall for that. And you hear these these speeches, for example, the one you just mentioned by Hess, or the one, um, the clip that I sent to you about when he's at the, uh, the youth camp and he's speaking to all the youth. You know, the colorful language, the, his, you know, he's a great orator. He has a really good way of rallying the people behind him. And, um, but I have a hard time believing that I would be caught up in that. Yeah, you know. And I, 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 let's let's cut uh, Germany a little slack. Not uh-huh. everybody was a member of the Nazi Party. It was yes. actually, and he mentions that in the film that yes. you know, there's only a, a few elite that'll be members of a party, mm-hmm. but the rest of you should you know kind of fall in line, lockstep. And not everybody did that. Let's let's uh, oh, let's, no, of course. let's remember that there were you know uh, uh, saner minds uh-huh. uh, throughout uh, much of of the, this interwar period. Yeah. Um, so the triumph of the will. Let's remember, uh, it's it's uh, a masterwork in propaganda. It's a masterwork in controlling the narrative. If you l- view any, if you observe any of the the editing techniques of Lenny mm-hmm. Riefenstahl, mm-hmm. Uh, who, by the way, intersects with my real uh, discipline of African history, which is kind of a a relatively recent thing in my my academic pursuits, she will actually go to uh, Sudan and and make a film about the demise of the Nuba, mm. and it's it's very high quality stuff, but it's also uh, it's amazing. Lenny Riefenstahl, it's it, there's this there's this eroticism mm. that 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 uh, is kind of pervasive in that film that she did about the the Nuba in Sudan. Hmm. But uh, the whole her techniques really are are simple editing. Hitler will most of the speeches that Hitler's doing in that film, he's doing as an actor. They don't have the yeah. actual angles mm-hmm. during these massive rallies, and the audio is so terrible that they could never get it all. So he's <coughs> in a he's actually in a studio pretending that he's you know yeah. currying all this you know and and, and uh, injecting energy into all these uh, these uh, hysterical mm. followers. In truth, those were just cutaways, and, and mm-hmm. uh, 
very, very simple editorial techniques. I read, <clears throat> there's a book, <clears throat> excuse me, called uh, Nazis in the Cinema, and I, and I read that they actually would record some of the speeches. He, they, she had him record some of his speeches in a room, and uh, the audio was played over mm-hmm. later to try to match it. And, yeah. um, but she also calls it, Lenny, she calls it um, cinema verité, mm-hmm. you know, real cinema. Yeah. And she says it's not a propagandistic film, it's a documentary, and it's real history as it was happening at yeah. that time. Well, she, she explained that later when she was up for trial. For trial. Uh, and uh, managed to She to denies all escape. sort of yeah. knowledge of any sort of premeditated plans or right. anything like that. Yeah. And so she went on, and she lives to be a thousand. She dies in like 2000. Oh, oh, 04 or 05, something like that, yeah. Yeah, so she's like 90-something she when ancient. she passes away. <laughs> you know, to her credit, she uh, mm-hmm. she lived a pretty adventurous life and, mm-hmm. and lived on the edge and managed to survive it all. Mm-hmm. The, uh, it was interesting because I was reading a little bit about her life as well, and um, uh, I uh, really was shocked that Hitler would choose a woman to to direct that film, actually, and to have be in charge of such an important project. Um, she had that film... Das Blaunicht, The Blue Light, mm-hmm. and it was somewhat successful, but her directing, it was really kind of her directorial debut, or actually, she didn't actually have a lot of work behind her before that time, and I always, I couldn't really figure out why he would trust such an important project. Yeah, maybe to, he saw some know, talent that other people didn't see. I think he got around him, maybe she was one of the few that would actually say yes, Usually yeah. people in film are pretty liberal and pretty mm-hmm. open-minded and independent thinkers. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he had asked other, you know, filmmakers to mm-hmm. to do that and they just dis- they just said no. Yeah. Whereas she said yes. I don't know what the what the backstory is on on Lenny Riefenstahl. I just I know she had an, a prolific mm-hmm. career. A lot of uh, I was reading the same book Nazis in the cinema. A lot of um uh, directors at that time were actually Jewish mm. and were being blacklisted or boycotted. And uh, she had Jewish friends that had been kind of, you know, blacklisted as well, and their work had been stopped. And so I think she, like you were saying, she may have been one of the few options. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. And uh, and um, yeah, she yeah she also claimed to a lot of uh, the the Reich had a you know an arts department as well, and there was a um, to, in order to be. German-made film, considered a German-made film, you couldn't have any Jer- or Jewish actors or foreign actors like mm-hmm. in that case, but Ju- Jewish actors or Jewish you know, people on the film crew, directors, yeah. editors, anything like that, musicians mm-hmm. for the music. So there was a movement that was already kind of, obviously we know that, but even in the world of cinema. So like we were just saying again, seems like unfathomable ideas, but what sort of progress has been made in your mind since then until now as far as the unknown we were talking about the foreigner, the unknown things that we are struggling with today, it yeah. seems like. Uh, speaking from a little bit more perspective, perhaps, than you have, since I've been yes. around just a hair longer, <laughs> uh, you know, back in the 90s when the internet was coming online, and uh, that there was so much hope that this would be the great democratizer, mm. um, that, that social media enabled and, and empowered uh, the common man to to rally and to organize and to get the word out and and uh, there was some real truth to that all the way up to 2011 it was fundamentally Facebook uh, and social media that brought about the Arab Spring starting in Tunisia hmm. and that will you know spread throughout North Africa and into into the Middle East with so much uh, hope and anticipation really only to be 
crushed by the same tool of social media. Hmm. So that uh, you know, governments now are involved in uh, uh, putting out fake news to control the narrative once again. Mm. So I think if if Adolf Hitler were alive today, I think he would be a master uh, a master message maker in the fake news mm. arena. Uh, you know, we we have you know fully. Uh, uh, conclusive evidence that Russia involved itself in the 2016 election using fake news and and mm. uh, you know vilifying Hillary with all of the <laughs> the allegations of this or that um, that's all been well documented uh, I think Hitler were he around today would would follow suit and, and do the same exact thing it's enormously powerful mm. and uh, how people uh, without really any background mm -hmm. or, or uh, the ability to get a different opinion or find contrary evidence that would refute these fake news posts, they just repost it. Mm -hmm. And so it spreads like wildfire and it's so in unbelievably toxic to, to true democracy. How does one discern between, you know, real news and fake news? Because even me as a consumer of, I try to, you know, put faith in certain outlets and, and uh, to get, you know, the truth. Yeah. But I, at the end of the day, I really don't know what to believe. And I feel like you can feel confident in, in your bubble and what you know. At the end of the day, I feel like it's really has nothing to do with what's actually going on, the things that we tend to hold on to. Well, I've, I've grappled with this uh, as an American and as a what I consider to be a, a, a patriotic American, mm -hmm. fiercely proud of our system and, and the example that we've set for the last... 95 years since you know World War 100 years and and even before then uh, our constitutional system has amazingly worked better for better or for worse for 200 and what 40 years now something like that 50 years uh, that said I have to be fairly disciplined in my what I consider my intellectual diet hmm. uh, if you listen only to CNN, then you know President Trump hasn't done anything good, and he's nothing but a, a big, fat, greedy, you know, business tycoon who cheats on his taxes. <laughs> and if you listen only to Fox News, then he is the the greatest thing. That's he's the best president ever. And so you know, the truth obviously is going to be in the middle of those. And and I have found that it's healthy to listen to the other side. It's healthy to listen to both polarizing uh, narratives, but it's even better to listen to an international opinion, mm -hmm. to get one's news from a th kind of a third party that doesn't have so much emotional investment yeah. nor uh, potential advertising revenues. They're, they're actually out for, as CNN is, basically what we call, what Rush Limbaugh calls confiscatory advertising revenues, which is basically the more hype that you can throw out there <laughs> The higher pay your advertisers will will pay to you know sell the mattresses or mm. whatever they're selling online. Mm. So that's fundamentally the argument. It's it boils down to money, and mm. these uh, these news agencies have to play a, a capitalist market. So uh, that's why I like to get my news from from a third party, and that's mm. outside the United States, and see what what a neutral maybe uh, a neutral uh, interest uh, comes up with. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening. Go on to part two of the first episode, Triumph of the Will, to hear the rest of it.